from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress, and I'm talking with Dr. Charles Lim, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, a hearing specialist at uh, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and also on the faculty of the uh, Peabody Conservatory of Music. And you've just given a, a fabulous talk here at the library, uh, talking about your brain on jazz, neural substrates of spontaneous improvisation. And we'll talk a little bit more. We'll sort of break that down in a few minutes. But first, I want to find out a little bit more about you. Sure. When did you first become interested in music? What, what was that like? You know, I have to say that I, I don't recall a time when I wasn't interested in music. Ever since I was, a, I think, a toddler, I was playing some form of music. We had a piano. I played, my parents taught me to play very early. And um, it's just been something I've, I've lived with my whole life. In fact, you know, to be very honest with you, it, it's something that I'm really consumed by. Music is something that it's so much a part of who I am and what I think about. I, I feel like I, I think about it to a certain extent all day long, every day. I, I feel like I dream about it. And I wake up thinking about it. I mean, it's, you know, other than my family and my, my, my children, it's really, it's very much at the forefront of my mind and everything that I've done. And as a hearing specialist, my interest in music, I, I really have to say that it was fueled by my just deep curiosity about music. As a as a student, let's say, when you started, obviously, also to have an interest in science, mm-hmm. did you feel those were two different poles? Well, I'm someone who's interested in science. I've got to be a scientist. I've got to study these sorts of things. I'm interested in music, which is creative, which is an art form. And those are two separate things. Right. You know, there are a lot of people that are in science and medicine that are very musical. You know, I'm certainly not unique in that. And I think that there must be some link between the two, some reason why people that have analytical minds also have musical minds. And maybe it has something to do with the, the ma- underlying mathematics of music. Because I mean, music is very structurally, you know, it's, it's ornate. It's, you can almost look at it from an equation perspective. Um, me personally, I, I, I've never um, had a problem resolving those aspects of my life in the sense that, you know, to me, I mean, with, with like every part of the world. I mean, everything offers something different and unique and new. And as far as being artistic or being analytical, I, I'm not a, a kind of person to overclassify or to kind of compartmentalize these things. I mean, the, I, I feel like they're all part of the same human experience. I will say that as a general trait, knowing myself, my science tends to be very humanized and my humanized, my humanities works tends to be very scientific. And so I, I really do kind of, I think, straddle the, the barrier between the two, or at least the, the intersection between the two. Great. Before we get a little more deeply into the science, just tell me again a little bit more about the music. In other words, as someone who cares so deeply about music, are you listening to music all the time? Are yeah. you? Do you set aside time every day to play music? Do you play music with other people? How right. does? How is music part of your life? Sure. So it, it's changed a lot as I've as my life has changed. You know, from a very practical perspective, you know, my my day job is truly as a surgeon, and that does require you know being a physician at Johns Hopkins does take a lot of my time. I'm fortunate in that as an auditory specialist, even when I'm doing surgery, you know, keep in mind, so for me, my surgery is on the hearing bones, it's on the inner ear, it's on the hearing nerves. And to me, it might not be, the problem may not be one of music, it may be one of tumor. (laughs) Yet, fundamentally, I'm dealing with a system that to me enables something as transcendent as music. So to, to me, it's all kind of parts of the same puzzle. And 
you know, I would say in a, on a daily schedule, my wife would probably know better, but yeah, music is very present in everything that I do in terms of listening, thinking, writing, reading, surfing the internet. I mean, every, every playing instruments, I, I collect instruments and I, I play, I'll have an instrument in my hand almost the moment I can get one. I do have two small children at home, including a seven-month-old, and that's hampered my ability to play saxophone at home at night, that's for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, on TV, sometimes we see that the surgeons like are wearing headphones or that there's music in the operating room. Do yes. you guys listen to music when you're operating? We, we, I, I personally do most of the time. Ear surgery is often very loud because of the drill. It's a, this constant like noise, and you know it's a little. It, it can be off-putting if that's all you're hearing. And so usually I have a low level of kind of comfortable music on in the background. It's not a distracting thing. I would say overall, it probably calms people down in the room, and it just makes for me. It makes me a little more focused. Hmm. Yeah. It's always were, been that way. I've uh-huh. always studied with music. I've always done my best thinking, writing, whatever, with something music happening in the background. When you were talking to the group just a few minutes ago, you you started out by telling us sort of how we hear, Mm -hmm. and I think that might be a good place for us to start as well. Is there a way to do that without using too many words that we don't understand or or too many things that are very complicated if we're just listening? I think so, and I think that there's kind of really two parts. One is the ear, and the other is the brain. And you need both to hear because the ear is what collects the sound, but the brain is what interprets it. And so I think if you really want to understand hearing, you have to look at both. I mean, one cannot go without the other. Of the two, the brain is the one that's uh, more of a mystery in a sense because the peripheral auditory apparatus, it's really, it's fascinating, but it's fairly well understood. And it's a mechanical transducer, meaning that it takes vibrations from the air, sound, and it converts them into nervous impulses. And, that's, and those are sent to our brain. It's really remarkable. And I would say that in terms of our understanding, our meaning the scientific community at large and physicians at large, we really have very little understanding of how really complex stimuli, something like music, are, are truly heard. And we have a lot of ideas and data on the elemental aspects of sound. But when you get at the level of, you know, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, it's, a, it's just another... Quite like that, you've you've just reached another level of questioning that we're not at yet. Yeah, I guess there are lots of medical specialties that sort of take uh, what happens to the body and and have it lead to the brain. But it seems that hearing, especially in the way that you look into it and that, that you have worked on it in your career, takes that connection and really makes it central. I feel fortunate that I've been able to focus on this question. That to me is it's fascinating. You know, with hearing. There's both an incoming and an outcoming aspect to it. You know, the depends on what aspect of music you're talking about. But let's just take dancing, for example, right? You know, just to, to dance to music requires you to hear that music, process it, and then coordinate it with your with your movement, your, your motor system. Automatically, you're talking about something that is both incoming and outcoming. It's very, very complicated. And that's why something like playing a musical instrument, which is, again, the same thing. It requires you to actively survey what you're playing and also react to what's coming in, but also to what's coming out. It's, I mean, it's, it's all systems are intermeshed at once. It's pretty remarkable. All right, let's jump right now into improvisation, sure. because that's some of the research that you were presenting to us. And I want to know, what was it about improvisation that grabbed you and said, I've got to take uh, this subject and really delve into it as deeply as I possibly can in terms of my understanding of both hearing and the brain? Right. Without overstating my own history with that, I would say that I've always been an improviser. 
when I was a kid learning to play in middle school and junior high school, I would come home from school and I would improvise. And to me, it was very natural because I wasn't particularly good at reading sheet music and I was by myself. I didn't have a band to play with. I was just playing by the piano. And I became consciously aware that I was doing it at some point when other friends or other musicians said, hey, you know, what are you playing? And I said, I don't know. I'm just playing. I just made it up. And then I said, oh, you know, and so that's when I started learning about jazz and the tradition of jazz. And, you know, when you're a student, it's, and when you're young, I think that it's hard for a, a teenager to play the blues the way a 50-year-old plays. It's like, it's a, it's a, the music reflects who you are at the time. And, you know, I, I felt that as well. When you're, when I was young, I wasn't, you know, my view of jazz has evolved as I've, as I've evolved. And I think when I was younger, it was, um, it's more like, wow, look at, look at, look at these, you know, you listen to a jazz and wow, that's amazing. Or you look at transcription of a song and you say, wow, that, that's amazing. I can't believe they did that. And so, you know, I've always, my whole life been kind of fascinated by that process. And then as I became a hearing specialist, and this is, again, we're talking about 20 years of my career condensed into a few sentences. As I progressed, I realized that we really have scientific methods to actually try to ask a question about jazz, which I never really thought I would be able to do. So what was the first question that, that you asked and wanted to answer? It was a lofty one. Um, it was, what in the brain takes place when somebody is spontaneously generating creative output? When you're improvising, when you're coming up with something that's never been played before, how is that neurologically possible? And this is I talked about this uh, at the lecture just a little while ago. I mean, I think it's important to say that musical productivity is a neurologic behavior just like speaking is, just like singing is, just like writing and so forth, meaning that there is certainly a lot we don't understand about jazz and, you know, all of the whole mysticism of music, and especially something like spontaneous creativity, yet it's coming from the brain. It's, it's a neurologic process. And looking at it that way, I think, is very important as kind of a first step to say, okay, it's fair game for study. This is something that, this is a product of the brain. Let's treat it like any other process of the brain, you know, I mean, walking is pretty magical, yet, you know, we can study how the, how the legs are coordinated with the vestibular system and so forth. And so I think with music, it's the same thing. Well, it may not have an obvious survival benefit, but as far as understanding what makes us tick and what makes us human, I think it's a, it's a pretty nice glimpse into that mysterious black box of our brain. Okay, let's break improvisation down a little bit, which we didn't so much do before, because so many things are happening. Right. You know, when a jazz musician is improvising, they've got sort of a structure. They, there are chords there, there's a melody that is going on in their mind. They've just probably played that melody. They've played those chords with their teammates, with their bandmates. Mm-hmm. And so now it's their turn to turn that melody into something brand new. And, and they're using the chords to guide them. And they're using also all of their training that they've ever had. They've Absolutely. been practicing scales. They've been practicing patterns. Mm-hmm. All of these things are sort of baked into their brains. <laughs> and out the other end comes something brand new that they then have to transfer back into their fingers, back into their breath, and out the instrument. That's right. So you were looking at all of that activity in the brain... And, and tell me, you know, how you looked at it right. and tell you know, me what you found. When you put it that way, it sounds so intimidating and daunting and kind of unassailable. But I think that, so you're absolutely correct. But that, that's what makes jazz great. It's filtered through the individual. And that's why jazz is 
such an individual art form. And when you hear a jazz soloist, you can really see their musical identity, their personality, their their past, their their victories, their sufferings, their loves, their hates. I mean, all of it comes out in in great music. And I think that with improvisation, to a certain extent more so than when you're playing somebody else's music, even with great pathos, when it's your own music, you really connect to it because you're trying to tell your musical story. And so I think that I kind of wrapped the whole process up into a ball and said, okay, we know that all of these amazing phenomena are taking place. Yet, in the end, we can say, let's take take five jazz musicians and let's just have them improvise. Let's see what let's see what takes place without getting too caught up in the fact that a million things are actually taking place. That's the, that is the case, but as I said earlier, you know, we've got to start somewhere. I have to try. Okay, so what did you do? So we did something called functional MRI, and that's a, a way to take a person, put them in an MRI scanner that measures blood flow in their brain. So rather than getting an anatomic map, it generates a functional map. So basically you can see areas of the brain that are regionally active or underactive. And so using this technology, um, basically you can study a lot of complex human cognitive functions. And so what we decided to do was to take jazz musicians, piano players, and then to have them play on a specialized, magnetically compatible piano keyboard in the MRI setting and image their brain when they were playing both something memorized versus something improvised. And that was the structure of our experiment in a nutshell. Okay, and what did you find? So we found several things, and you know, again, it's just one study, but the, the findings were fairly robust and fairly consistent from subject to subject. I think the most kind of unique findings or compelling findings were within the part of the brain called the the frontal lobe, the front of the brain, particularly called the prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of the brain that kind of separates humans from from animals and just really where a lot of kind of higher order human cognitive processes like cognition and self-conscious awareness are really where they take place, where they reside. Um, And so what we found was that area of the brain does this interesting thing where the medial prefrontal cortex, kind of the the central portion right in the center, when it turned on, it went up during improvisation, whereas the flanking area above it, called the lateral prefrontal cortex, shut down broadly. And so if you kind of distill those two things down, we call this a dissociated state of activity where one part of the brain is both up and down right next to each other. We think that that is neurologically in the frontal lobe what's happening to allow someone to improvise. And then if we further sort of take a look at what those regions do, you know, keeping in mind that they're multifunctional and that this is interpretive, a very reasonable interpretation is that the part of the brain that goes up, well, that's the part of the brain that relates to oneself. It's involved in what we write as neural instantiation of the self. It's autobiographical narrative, these kinds of things that what we call the default mode of the brain when you're being introspective, that area went up. So when you're improvising, these self-expressive areas are going up. That's fairly intuitive. But this also flanking region called the lateral prefrontal areas, they are self-monitoring regions, things that put things in, in an appropriate context and allow you to evaluate whether or not what you did was correct, incorrect, right, or wrong. It's in a way, it's a self-monitor, a self-censor. And that area shut down. And so we had this kind of like loss of lack of inhibition, you know, the disinhibition, if you will, combined with this self-expressive, self-introspective-related uh, area going up. And that unique combination, I think, is what enables you to both be creative, meaning to generate novelty without worrying about whether you're right or wrong or getting caught up in the details, and also to have what you're saying musically be relevant to who you are as an individual. And I think that that is you know, probably the ultimate goal of jazz improvisers is to play something unique that 
that reflects them. I mean, jazz is all about one's identity. Wow. Now, we talked about, uh, you know, a sort of an, an explosion of new ways to look at the brain. Is this mm-hmm. part of that? Is this something that we could have done five years ago or 10 years ago? Did we know how to do this? Could we have seen these things? Would we have known what to look for? So I, I think that it's in the past 10 years or so is really when this technology has evolved. It, it, the first paper describing this was really in the early 90s, um, this ability to use functional MRI. Now, predating functional MRI, there was something called PET scanning which was uh, very powerful, but a little bit less, uh, you get less data per time, and it's, uh, you have to have ionizing radiation in, injected into your arms. It's a, it's a little bit more invasive. So th- we've had methods to analyze these things. Functional MRI is non-invasive, very powerful, and the resolution, both spatially and temporally, is really pretty good, c- considering what it is. And so it's just opened up a, a whole new line. It's kind of really led the charge of this whole new line of cognitive studying. There's other techniques, transcranial magnetic stimulation, event-related potential study, magnetoencephalography, all these other ways to study the brain. But if you use them all together and each one corroborates the other, it's, it's pretty powerful. And so I would say that we're in the midst of a, like a, a relative modern golden age of neuroscience right now where some of the most challenging questions that were formerly not really considered legitimate for scientific inquiry well, we're now able to at least try to say, well, how would we go about answering this? Let's let's take a stab at it. And so I think we'll see it continue to evolve, and hopefully, hopefully our own work will reflect that as well. Great. Now, as before we close, let me take this in sort of two different directions, because one of the things you sounded most excited about was that this could be the key to our sort of understanding and even literally seeing how creativity works in the brain. Mm-hmm. And that, that was just looking at you when you were talking about, about right. that seemed like one of the things that really right. turned you, know, you on. So I view improvisation as a model of one type of creativity, which is spontaneous musical creativity. There are a lot of forms of creativity, and you can you know, keep bringing it down into intellectual, scientific, athletic, and so forth. And each one has its own unique kind of constraints, problems, and kind of insights. Overall, I would say, broadly speaking, creativity is to me, essential to the human species. It's allowed us to evolve and advance. I mean, where would we be without flashes of brilliance that are essentially intuitive moments of creative genius where novelty is derived? You know, I mean, how, how do we do that? How do we lateral think and have these, these kind of eureka moments where suddenly, you know, one moment you don't know something, the next moment you do know something, or you've come up, you've developed something new. And it's, it's intrinsic to human beings. I think that we're, we're geared to seek and to try to generate knowledge. You can see it in children. You know, you watch children at play. They're, they're solving many problems all the time in ways that you wouldn't have thought to solve it. And I think that it's just so fundamental to so many human processes that in a way, even though for me, jazz improvisation as a goal in and of itself is compelling enough, the fact that it relates to this much deeper process that's fundamental to a lot of human behavior, to me, it's, it's, um, it's, it's icing on the cake. That's great. Now, I just also want to bring this back to your kind of, as you say, your sort of main day job as a hearing specialist and the use of music as a way to understand hearing better, as a way to right. help people hear better. Absolutely. You know, tell me about that. Sure. You know, when we think about the auditory system and its job is to transduce sound, a lot of people automatically assume or kind of emphasize language as the main sound that we need to transfer because kind of a practical perspective language is really first and foremost in terms of priority for human communication. And that, that's well-deserved. Language is crucial. I would say that 
both my own personal experience and just from an acoustic perspective, music is in a way more challenging. It's, it's um, the, the acoustic features of music are very heterogeneous and in a way uh, not nearly as narrow as those of language. The semantic implications of what the music means are vague. And so music is harder. And, and I, I always describe it as the ultimate auditory challenge. I say it's the pinnacle of hearing. And I really believe that. For my patients, what I, you know, where, where I'm getting to is, you know, if you take somebody who is, let's just take somebody who's deaf and had their hearing restored with a cochlear implant, if you can get them to perceive music, not only did you enrich their life, but you have actually, you've really restored their ability to hear the hardest of sounds. And it can't get any better than that. And so I use it as kind of um, almost like a landmark, like a, a goal to shoot for. I, I know it's not realistic in a lot of cases. Um, and the other thing is that music can inform us on the auditory system because you know, a lot of our hearing tests, the clinical methods we use to evaluate hearing, they're very simple, in a way crude. They're, there's a certain necessity to the simplicity from a practical perspective, and it gives us certain fundamental information. But it's more like looking at the, f the bottom level of performance rather than the top level of performance. And I'm very interested in the top level of performance. And I feel like, well, music is the key to, to understanding what that top level of performance is. And so I often also treat musicians that kind of like-minded that they they hearing is essential to them for their music. That is the main purpose of their hearing. And without it, they wouldn't be the same person. And so as a physician, I, I take that role you know, pretty seriously. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Charles Lim, assistant professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for uh, your time. And I'm Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress. Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.